0: Hi, folks. Another week of news to make sense of. A Justice Department attorney has argued that the government isn't legally required to give soap and blankets to detained migrant children, shocking the judges and the public who viewed the video of the oral arguments. In an unusual move, Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen intervened, seemingly to spare Paul Manafort from being transferred to the notorious Rikers Island jail in New York while he awaits trial on state charges. And the White House's stonewalling of Congress continues with former White House Communications Director Hope Hicks asserting absolute immunity in refusing to answer the House Judiciary Committee's questions last week. I talk about all this and more with Ann Milgram on the Cafe Insider Podcast. Each week, we break down the news and take stock of what's happening. Today, we're making a clip from the most recent episode available in the Stay Tuned feed. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, become a member at cafecom insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Welcome to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, We only have one case on the calendar this afternoon, Flores versus Barr.
1: The Flores settlement basically says that the children must be housed in facilities that meet certain standards, including state standards for housing and care of dependent children. Um, It gives licensing authority, so all the programs have to be licensed. And then basically... What the, it's required that the minors are in the least restrictive settings and, you know, you said it, safe and sanitary facilities, toilets and sinks, drinking, water and food, medical assistance, temperature control, supervision, and contact with family members, among other requirements. And what the lawyer was saying was that she doesn't want to get into or sort of have at least at first blush i think she was starting to say like i don't want to get into what that list is the government doesn't see this as part of the, our list and by the way you're supposed to look at it in the totality of circumstances so it's not just is there a toothbrush is it it she was trying to basically argue it's everything put together it is the most absurd legal argument I have seen. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know how she made it with a straight face. I actually, I don't know how she made it. It's shocking, frankly. Actually.
0: Yeah. Safe and sanitary conditions is one thing, but the ultimate conclusion is, Safe and sanitary is a singular category in the agreement, and it was, it was, one has to assume left that way and not enumerated by the parties because either the parties couldn't reach agreement on how to enumerate that, or that it was left to the agencies to deter to determine. Or
1: it was relatively obvious, uh, and at least obvious enough so that if you're putting it's 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 really reprehensible in my view, and we should talk a little bit about what the administration is doing because. When you and I, I mean, both of us, you did an investigation into Rikers, the jail facility, which we'll probably talk about in a minute when we start talking about Paul Manafort. But I spent a lot of time in federal and state jails and prisons. There, everybody gets a toothbrush, right? Everybody gets a a clean change of clothes. When you look at prisoners of war by the Geneva Convention they get toothbrushes, they get clean clothes. So what our United States government is basically saying is that children who've come with their parents seeking asylum are not entitled to basic human rights.
0: There's a couple of things here, right? So on one level, the average person listens to the argument and says, well, that seems to violate everything that I think is good and right and proper. And you think about your own kids and you think about what common sense dictates. And most people don't know about the Flores settlement, nor should they know about the Flores settlement. But they think, you know, the, the way that proper human beings treat children is a certain way, and that includes you know, making sure they're able to sleep and have toothbrushes, et cetera. But I want to think about this as a lawyer also. So, obviously, that's the most important thing. As a lawyer, you're sending one of your people. You were the attorney general. I was the US attorney. And I had people in my civil division who might have argued things like this. You have to defend yeah. your client. In this case, it's DHS.
1: Yeah, it's worth noting that the local U.S. attorney's offices, they represent the Department of Homeland Security, and they're in the position of defending the United States government. Right,
0: but here it's not a U.S. attorney's office. It's being done out of Washington.
1: Yes, it's done out of Maine Justice, but it's all the federal prosecutors essentially represent the federal government- What's really interesting here is it's not just them representing the federal government. It's them appealing from the decision of the lower court, which said, no, there are not safe and sanitary conditions here. And the government, instead of accepting that and changing their practice, they decided, you know what, we're going to appeal this.
0: Right. So separate from a humanitarian issue, as a legal strategy, as a litigation strategy, you're sending your lawyer in to make this argument in front of a panel That's a fairly, as people like to say, Ninth Circuit is generally liberal. These are all three Clinton appointees. And you know that the public is going to see this argument you're making. And you know, if you're thinking rationally at all, that it's really going to piss off these judges because it's kind of an insane argument to make. So as a litigation strategy, when you have other issues that are before them and you have other cases that you may want to, you know, appeal and talk about, you're putting your weakest foot forward. And and credibility is important, you know, in leadership, but it's also important for a litigator to go before a court. And as we saw from the clips, and and people should watch them if you haven't, you know, every single one of the members of that court panel were, if not enraged, then shocked by the argument being made. And that should have been, I think, predicted before she went in.
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. And, And I think there's sort of a number of layers of legal questions we could be asking. The first is whether... The government should have even litigated the original case in the district court, which is to say that, look, there are basic minimum standards of human decency that are not being complied with. The government should do that. And and I want to sort of talk a little bit in, maybe in a minute about why I think the government isn't doing that. But they should have agreed to that. But even if they didn't at that first cut, once the judge basically said, nope, you're wrong, you got to change – The judgment to take that appeal, which you were clearly going to lose, in my view, and you clearly should lose based on the language, the clear language of the settlement, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. There's obviously politics in all of this, but they sent a lawyer in and she changed her story a little as you're watching it. She's deeply uncomfortable. And I find it fascinating. One of the three judges was actually... He was in a Japanese internment camp as a young child, and he was the first Japanese-American federal appellate judge. It's within everybody's common understanding that, you know, if you don't have a toothbrush, if you don't have soap, if you don't have a blanket, it's not safe and sanitary. Wouldn't everybody agree to that? You, do you agree to that?
0: Well, I, I think it's... I think those are. there's fair reason to find that those things may be part of safe no, and sanitary. maybe
1: are a part. What do you say, maybe? You mean there are circumstances where a person doesn't need to have a toothbrush, toothpaste, and soap for days?
0: Well, I think in CBP custody, there's frequent, it's frequently intended to be much shorter term. So, so you know, she's
1: walking in. She knows she's walking <laughs> in. She's going to be up against a lot of very tough questioning. And she can't do it. I mean, she they're saying to her, you personally, are you telling me? that you don't think that basic safety and sanitary conditions require things like toothbrushes.
0: It's unclear to me whether she had a hard time of it because she's not a good oral advocate or because she knew she had no argument or she was uncomfortable making the argument. Or all of the above. Or all of the above. Just also, by the way, you know, I I watched the argument and I thought about it. And it seems shocking to me, and I've used that word a bunch of times already. But I also like to do a gut check. And I think careful citizens and lawyers should always do that and think to yourself, well, what am I missing? Is there some argument in favor of the DOJ position here that I'm just not aware of and is eluding me? And my initial gut was that if someone in my office were being asked to make this argument on behalf of the client when I was U.S. attorney, I don't think there's any civil division assistant U.S. attorney in my office who would have agreed to stand up and make that argument. And if someone had agreed to stand up and make that argument, I would have told them, We're not doing that, and we wouldn't have signed the brief. And there were times during my my tenure as U.S. attorney that, you know, we sometimes had a disagreement, and we would take our name off a brief, and we would not make a particular argument. Some people can call that defiance. I call it exercising your own conscience. But I did a gut check. I talked to other folks.
1: Former prosecutors. Former prosecutors,
0: you know, who I worked with in our civil division, and they had the same reaction, that if it had fallen to us to make that argument— We just wouldn't have made it, and so that gets to another question that people have been raising, and that is, what was the proper role for an individual attorney at DOJ, Sarah Fabian, and how much blame should be placed on her? Uh, Was she just doing her job? You know, on the one hand, she's not the only person who can be blamed for making the argument. Obviously, it was vetted. Obviously, it's a position of the department. uh, As often happens in these cases, she had to have been mooted, meaning she did practice sessions of argument with supervisors in the office. Maybe it went, you know, fairly high up in the Justice Department. It's a very sensitive case, and a lot of people are looking at it. So the department as a whole has a responsibility to make only worthwhile and humane and moral arguments uh, and legal arguments. But then what was the role she plays, and how, how do you think about her decision to go forward?
1: I think I think it's an important conversation for us to have because, you know, my view is that the way society treats its children is really illustrative of of how government works and that we're failing miserably here as a country. And I sort of think that, you know, if all of us sit at home and think about, you know, you read a book about the civil rights movement and you think, oh, I would have been, you know, with Martin Luther King on that side, you like to think about how you would have responded in times of crisis and turmoil like this. And I sort of feel like we're missing the point that we're actually in one of those times right now. And countries and governments that use children and harm children to punish adults, to me, are not countries that we want to be a part of. And so I personally feel very, very strongly about this. And I think there's no question in my mind, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have let or asked any of the lawyers who work for me to do it. The one thing I will say, though, is that and so I, I do fault her personally with doing it. I think she shouldn't have done it. But I agree really strongly with your your comment that there are a lot of people in this. And I think it's a mistake to see it as this is Sarah Fabian's decision. This isn't Sarah Fabian's decision. This is Donald Trump's decision. This is his head of the Department of Homeland Security. This is the head of Customs and Border Patrol. And so she is an arm. The Department of Justice is being an arm of those political wishes. And she went along with it. And I think all of us have to account for in this moment, whether we go along with this or whether we stop it. So I think she's accountable, but I also think that it's just easy because we saw her on TV. The argument is so outrageous. It's easy just to point all of our sort of vitriol at her, but she's one small piece of a much bigger pie that we need to stay focused on. And I think one of the things I would I would sort of raise is that there's a real conversation that's happening here, and I haven't seen it in the media very much, but there's something that the Customs and Border Patrol have been doing for a long time, which is this sort of 100-mile zone. And what that means is that the way CBP sees it is that the Constitution essentially doesn't apply, that the rules are different, that there's expanded powers for Customs and Border Patrol within 100 miles of the borders of the United States. And that applies to when people are seeking asylum, um, that applies to you know, search and seizure rights to length of detention. And there are real questions in my view that the administration is pushing based on this argument that the same rules do not apply in those territories for people who are not lawfully in the United States than apply in the rest of the country. And all that people could sit at home and say, well, what does it matter? I'm not crossing the border at Mexico. But 100 miles from the border is literally Two thirds of all the people in the United States—that's 200 <laughs> right. million people. So if we start to think about this, and you know, I'm just sort of, you know, putting this out there. If this is one of the first steps of how totalitarian regimes treat children and families and start to strip away rights, it's not just a question of people crossing the border. It is today people coming seeking lawful asylum. It's a question of within a hundred miles—that's a lot of people and a lot of distance. And so what worries me about this fight on Flores. In Flores, the U.S. government agreed we'll follow any state detention rules, right? Any state that has foster care rules or child protection rules will follow them. So the U.S. government has agreed to that. Now they're walking into a court and basically saying... We want to make that as narrow as possible. They're supposed to hold kids for 20 days. They're holding them for way more than 20 days. They're breaking all the rules, and they're going in to argue that either the rules don't apply or that they're coming up with, I think, specious, with really, you know, unfounded legal arguments to try to justify conduct that you and I would sit there and say, how is that possibly not violate the laws?
0: And I don't even get why. You know, there's the moral reason that it makes no sense. There's the legal argument that is specious and terrible. And then there's the pragmatic argument. Like, what you know, what does it get you? You're going to have defeat after defeat handed to you. Maybe they're thinking, you know, it'll go up to the Supreme Court and we'll have a favorable Supreme Court. But, you but know, Flores like, no. is
1: a weird case even to do that on because they signed a settlement. So I, I agree with you. This is a very odd example. Look,
0: I, I tend to start to believe the argument that some people make and that, you know, the cruelty is the point. I mean, you'd like to think that no one is being intentionally cruel. They're just maybe being dumb about how they're engaging in their policies. But... At some point, you have no choice but to believe that the cruelty is the point and you want the message to go forth to Central America and other places that if you come with a child, they will be, if not abused, then completely neglected and not given basic elements to live a safe and sanitary existence while they're held on concrete floors with no beds and aluminum blankets in U.S. custody and that seems to me to be you know, a terrible policy, not just a terrible legal argument. Aren't toothbrushes and blankets and medicine, basic conditions for kids, aren't they a part of how the United States of America, the Trump administration, treats children? Well, of course they are, Jake. Well, the lawyer was arguing well, the opposite. I, I can't speak to what that lawyer was saying. Yeah. It's one of the reasons we asked for more bed space Right. when we for were negotiating supplemental with Congress. Yeah. No, when we were negotiating during the government shutdown. Oh, okay. And Democrats in Congress refused to expand the bed space and the capacity for us to, to detain but people. This is going on right now. Borders, it's one of the reasons why we continue to call on Congress to give DHS, Customs and Border Protection, additional resources at the border. But this is again, the wealthiest nation in the world. What, we have money to give toothpaste and soap and blankets to these kids in this facility. I hope you've enjoyed this sample of the Cafe Insider podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and become a member. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.